Dead Souls, Part One, Chapter Seven, Section One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol, translated by D. J. Hogarth, Part One, Chapter Seven, Section One, read by Anna Simon. When Chichikov awoke, he stretched himself and realized that he had slept well. For a moment or two he lay on his back, and then suddenly clapped his hands at the recollection that he was now owner of nearly four hundred souls. At once he leapt out of bed without so much as glancing at his face in the mirror, though, as a rule, he had much solicitude for his features, and especially for his chin, of which he would make the most when in company with friends, and more particularly should anyone happen to enter while he was engaged in the process of shaving. "'Look how round my chin is!' was his usual formula. On the present occasion, however, he looked neither at chin nor at any other feature, but at once donned his flower-embroidered slippers of Morocco leather, the kind of slippers in which, thanks to the Russian love for a dressing-gown's existence, the town of Torzhok does such a huge trade, and, clad only in a meagre shirt, so far forgot his elderliness and dignity as to cut a couple of capers after the fashion of a Scottish highlander, alighting neatly each time on the flat of his heels. Only when he had done that did he proceed to business. Planting himself before his dispatch-box, he rubbed his hands with a satisfaction worthy of an incorruptible rural magistrate when adjourning for luncheon, after which he extracted from the receptacle a bundle of papers. These he had decided not to deposit with a lawyer, for the reason that he would hasten matters, as well as save expense, by himself framing and fair copying the necessary deeds of indenture, and since he was thoroughly acquainted with the necessary terminology, he proceeded to inscribe in large characters the date, and then in smaller ones his name and rank. By two o'clock the whole was finished, and, as he looked at the sheets of names representing bygone peasants who had ploughed, worked at handicrafts, cheated their masters, fetched, carried, and got drunk, though some of them may have behaved well, there came over him a strange, unaccountable sensation. To his eye each list of names seemed to possess a character of its own, and even individual peasants therein seemed to have taken on certain qualities peculiar to themselves. For instance, to the majority of Madame Korobotchka's serfs there were appended nicknames and other additions. Plushkin's list was distinguished by a conciseness of exposition which had led to certain of the items being represented merely by Christian name, patronymic, and a couple of dots. And Sobakovitch's list was remarkable for its amplitude and circumstantiality, in that not a single peasant had such of his peculiar characteristics omitted as that the deceased had been excellent at joinery, or sober and ready to pay attention to his work. Also, in Sobakovitch's list, there was recorded who had been the father and the mother of each of the deceased, and how those parents had behaved themselves. Only against the name of a certain Thedotov was there inscribed, Father unknown, mother the maidservant Capitolina, morals and honesty good. These details communicated to the document a certain air of freshness. They seemed to connote that the peasants in question had lived but yesterday. As Chichikov scanned the list, he felt softened in spirit, and said with a sigh, my friends, what a concourse of you is here! How did you all pass your lives, my brethren? And how did you all come to depart hence? As he spoke, his eyes halted at one name in particular, 
that of the same Peter Savilyev Nevajai Korito, who had once been the property of the widow Korbotchka. Once more he could not help exclaiming, "'What a series of titles! They occupy a whole line! Peter Savilyev, I wonder whether you were an artisan or a plain muzhik. Also, I wonder how you came to meet your end, whether in a tavern, or whether through going to sleep in the middle of the road and being run over by a train of wagons. Again, I see the name Propka Stepan, carpenter, very sober. That must be the hero of whom the guards would have been so glad to get hold. How well I can imagine him tramping the country with an axe in his belt and his boots on his shoulder, and living on a few groats worth of bread and dried fish per day, and taking home a couple of half-ruble pieces in his purse, and sewing the notes into his breeches, or stuffing them into his boots. In what manner came you by your end, Popka Stepan? Did you, for good wages, mount a scaffold around the cupola of the village church, and, climbing thence to the cross above, miss your footing on a beam, and fall headlong, with none at hand but Uncle Mikai, the good uncle who, scratching the back of his neck, and muttering, Ah, Vanya, for once you have been too clever, straightway lashed himself to a rope and took your place. Maxim Telyatnikov, shoemaker. A shoemaker, indeed! As drunk as a shoemaker, says the proverb. I know what you were like, my friend. If you wish, I'll tell you your whole history. You were apprenticed to a German, who fed you and your fellows at a common table, thrashed you with a strap, kept you indoors whenever you made a mistake, and spoke of you in uncomplimentary terms to his wife and friends. At length, when your apprenticeship was over, you said to yourself, I'm going to set up on my own account, and not just to scrape together a kopeck here and a kopeck there, as the Germans do, but to grow rich quick. And she took a shop at a high rent, bespoke a few orders, and set to work to buy up some rotten leather out of which you could make, on each pair of boots, a double profit. But those boots split within a fortnight, and brought down upon your head dire showers of maledictions, with the result that gradually your shop grew empty of customers, and you fell to roaming the streets, and exclaiming, "'The world is a very poor place indeed. A Russian cannot make a living for German competition.' "'Well, well.' Elizabetta Vorbei. But that is a woman's name. How comes she to be on the list? That villain Sabakovitch must have sneaked her in without my knowing it. Grigory Gojai Nodoidesh, he went on. What sort of man were you, I wonder? Were you a carrier who, having set up a team of three horses and a tilt wagon, left your home, your native hovel, for ever, and departed to cart merchandise to market? Was it on the highway that you surrendered your soul to God? Or did your friends first marry you to some fat, red-faced soldier's daughter, after which your harness and team of rough but sturdy horses caught a highwayman's fancy, and you, lying on your pallet, thought things over until, willy-nilly, you felt that you must get up and make for the tavern, thereafter blundering into an ice-hole? Ah, our peasant of Russia, never do you welcome death when it comes. And you, my friends, continued Chichikov, turning to the sheet whereon were inscribed the names of Plushkin's absconded serfs. Although you are still alive, what is the good of you? You are practically dead. Whither, I wonder, have your fugitive feet carried you? Did you fare hardly at Plushkin's, or was it that your natural inclinations led you to prefer roaming the wilds and plundering travellers? Are you, by this time, in goal, or have you taken service with other masters for the tillage of their lands? Ermai Karyakin, Nikita Volokita and Anton Volokita, 
son of the forgoing. To judge from your surnames, you would seem to have been born gadabouts. Footnote. The names Karyakin and Volokita might, perhaps, be translated as Galant and Loafer. End footnote. Popov, household serve. Probably you were an educated man, good Popov, and go in for polite thieving, as distinguished from the more vulgar cut-throat sort. In my mind's eye, I seem to see a captain of rural police challenging you for being without a passport, whereupon you stake your all upon a single throw. "'To whom do you belong?' asked the captain, probably adding to his question a forcible expletive. "'To such and such a landowner,' stoutly you reply. "'And what are you doing here?' continues the captain. "'I have just received permission to go and earn my opera,' is your fluent explanation. "'Then where is your passport?' Admission in Pimenov's footnote, tradesman or citizen, end footnote. Pimenov's? Then are you Pimenov himself? Yes, I'm Pimenov himself. He has given you his passport? No, he has not given me his passport. Come, come, shouts the captain, with another forcible expletive. You're lying. No, I'm not, is your dogged reply. It is only that last night I could not return him his passport, because I came home late. So I handed it to Ante Prokhorov, the bell-ringer, for him to take care of. Bell-ringer, indeed. Then he gave you a passport. No, I didn't receive a passport from him, either. What? And here the captain shouts another expletive. How dare you keep on lying? Where is your own passport? I had one, all right, you reply cunningly, but must have dropped it somewhere on the road as I came along. And what about that soldier's coat? asked the captain, with an impolite addition. Whence did you get it? And what about the priest's cash-box and copper money? About them I know nothing, you reply doggedly. Never at any time have I committed a theft. Then how is it that the coat was found at your place? I do not know. Probably someone else put it there. You rascal! You rascal! shouts the captain, shaking his head and closing in upon you. Put the leg-irons upon him, and off with him to prison. With pleasure, you reply, as, taking a snuff-box from your pocket, you offer a pinch to each of the two gendarmes who are manacling you, while also inquiring how long they have been discharged from the army, and in what wars they may have served. And in prison you remain until your case comes on, when the justice orders you to be removed from Tsarovkokshaika to such and such another prison, and a second justice orders you to be transferred thence to Vizhigonsk or somewhere else and you go flitting from goal to goal, and saying each time, as you eye your new habitation, the last place was a good deal cleaner than this one is, and one could play babki there, and stretch one's legs, and see a little society. Footnote. Babki is the game of knuckle-bones. End footnote. Abakum Tsirov, Chichikov went on after a pause. What of you, brother? Where and in what capacity are you disporting yourself? Have you gone to the Volga country, and become bitten with the life of freedom, and joined the fishermen of the river? Here, breaking off, Chichikov relapsed into silent meditation. Of what was he thinking as he sat there? Was he thinking of the fortunes of Abakum Thirov, or was he meditating as meditates every Russian when his thoughts once turned to the joys of an emancipated existence? Ah, well, he sighed, looking at his watch. It has now gone twelve o'clock. Why have I so forgotten myself? There is still much to be done, yet I go shutting myself up and letting my thoughts wander. What a fool I am! 
So saying, he exchanged his Scottish costume, of a shirt and nothing else, for attire of a more European nature, after which he pulled tight the waistcoat over his ample stomach, sprinkled himself with eau de Cologne, stuck his papers under his arm, took his fur cap, and set out for the municipal offices, for the purpose of completing the transfer of souls. The fact that he hurried along was not due to a fear of being late, seeing that the president of the local council was an intimate acquaintance of his, as well as a functionary who could shorten or prolong an interview at will, even as Homer's Zeus was able to shorten or to prolong a night or a day, whenever it became necessary to put an end to the fighting of his favourite heroes, or to enable them to join battle but rather to a feeling that he would like to have the affair concluded as quickly as possible, seeing that, throughout, it had been an anxious and difficult business. Also, he could not get rid of the idea that his souls were unsubstantial things, and that therefore, under the circumstances, his shoulders had better be relieved of their load with the least possible delay. Pulling on his cinnamon-coloured, bare-lined overcoat as he went, he had just stepped thoughtfully into the street, when he collided with a gentleman dressed in a similar coat and an ear-lapetted fur cap. Upon that the gentleman uttered an exclamation. Behold, it was Manilov! At once the friends became folded in a strenuous embrace, and remained so locked for fully five minutes. Indeed, the kisses exchanged were so vigorous that both suffered from toothache for the greater portion of the day. Also, Manilov's delight was such that only his nose and lips remained visible the eyes completely disappeared. Afterwards he spent about a quarter of an hour in holding Chichikov's hand and chafing it vigorously. Lastly, he, in the most pleasant and exquisite terms possible, intimated to his friend that he had just been on his way to embrace Paul Ivanovitch, and upon this followed a compliment of the kind which would more fittingly have been addressed to a lady who was being asked to accord a partner the favour of a dance. Chichikov had opened his mouth to reply though even he felt at a loss how to acknowledge what had just been said, when Manilov cut him short by producing from under his coat a roll of paper tied with red ribbon. "'What have you there?' asked Chichikov. "'The list of my souls.' "'Ah!' And as Chichikov unrolled the document and ran his eye over it, he could not but marvel at the elegant neatness with which it had been inscribed. "'It is a beautiful piece of writing,' he said. In fact, there will be no need to make a copy of it. Also, it has a border around its edge. Who worked that exquisite border? Do not ask me, said Manilov. Did you do it? No, my wife. Dear, dear, Chichikov cried, to think that I should have put her to so much trouble. Nothing could be too much trouble where Paul Ivanovitch is concerned. Chichikov bowed his acknowledgments. Next, on learning that he was on his way to the municipal offices for the purpose of completing the transfer, Manilov expressed his readiness to accompany him, wherefore the pair linked arm in arm and proceeded together. Whenever they encountered a slight rise in the ground, even the smallest unevenness or difference of level, Manilov supported Chichikov with such energy as almost to lift him off his feet, while accompanying the service with a smiling implication that not if he could help it should Paul Ivanovitch slip or fall. Nevertheless, this conduct appeared to embarrass Chichikov, either because he could not find any fitting words of gratitude, or because he considered the proceeding tiresome, and it was with a sense of relief that he debouched upon the square where the municipal offices, a large three-storied building of a chalky whiteness which probably symbolized the purity of the souls engaged within, 
was situated. No other building in the square could vie with them in size, seeing that the remaining edifices consisted only of a sentry-box, a shelter for two or three cabmen, and a long hoarding, the latter adorned with the usual bills, posters, and scrolls in chalk and charcoal. At intervals, from the windows of the second and third stories of the municipal offices, the incorruptible heads of certain of the attendant priests of Themis would peer quickly forth, and as quickly disappear again, probably for the reason that a superior official had just entered the room. Meanwhile, the two friends ascended the staircase, nay, almost flew up it, since, longing to get rid of Manilov's ever-supporting arm, Chichikov hastened his steps, and Manilov kept darting forward to anticipate any possible failure on the part of his companion's legs. Consequently, the pair were breathless when they reached the first corridor. In passing, it may be remarked that neither corridors nor rooms evinced any of that cleanliness and purity which marked the exterior of the building, for such attributes were not troubled about within, and anything that was dirty remained so, and donned no meretricious, purely external disguise. It was as though Themis received her visitors in negligee and a dressing-gown. The author would also give a description of the various offices through which our hero passed, were it not that he, the author, stands in awe of such legal haunts. End of Part 1, Chapter 7, Section 1